Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. I don't know about you, but it's been a hell of a week. For anyone with kids either gearing up or already back in school, either in person or online, you've no doubt had your hands full. So many things to plan, organize, and figure out. One of those things, on that long list of to-dos, though, I can picture it. It says... Why, it says, submit story to Tales to Terrify. How about that? And you're in luck. We'll be open for submissions for at least a few more weeks. TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions has everything you need to know. Speaking of need to know, there are some things that we need to know. We've had a handful of reviews in the last while, And I just want to say thank you to those of you who take the time to let us know how we're doing, what you love, and what we could do better. Every review gets read, and we take all of your feedback to heart. We want Tales to Terrify to be one of the highlights of your week, something you look forward to every Friday. So, keep the feedback coming, whether it's a review on your favorite podcast app, or better yet, an email to editor at TalesToTerrify.com or a message on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. This week, I'd like to give a shout-out to Brad Jacobs. Not only an amazing human for supporting the show on Patreon, but also our first-ever yearly patron. Yes, Patreon now allows us to offer yearly Patreon memberships. So what does that mean? Well you can now get all of the same great perks and benefits without having to pay month-to-month. Better yet, if you sign up for our yearly Patreon any day in the month of September, you'll save 15% compared to a monthly subscription. We have fresh bonus content on the horizon, too, and our next round of swag is well in the works. Bigger, better, and darker than ever. Don't miss your chance to get a full year's worth of ad-free frights for 15% off. Visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify. As we get back on the road this week, we're now firmly in my old stomping grounds. I mentioned last week that I grew up in the city of Calgary, Alberta. It's where I spent my grade school years 
running through fields and riding bikes through our growing neighborhood at the edge of the city. And it's also where I spent my university years, well, doing all those things university kids do, which, more often than not, involved a pint of beer in hand. One thing I always found a little sad about the city of Calgary is the emphasis on new and modern. When I went to university there, I lived in an older neighborhood, not far from the edge of Calgary's sprawling downtown. And far too often, I'd witness beautiful old character homes being torn down, their huge treed lots subdivided to make way for a pair of modern infills. And it always hurt my heart a little. But while it seems to be the exception rather than the rule, from time to time an older building will get a new lease on life. And interestingly, pubs seem to be the thing to repurpose them into. I've never been much of a dance club person, always preferred the dark, smoky, low-key ambience of a good pub. But one of the things I always found so curious about the pubs in Calgary was how many of them had stories. Dark stories. I'm not sure what it is about ghosts and pubs. So many people passing through, I guess. So much action. And so many emotions. I guess it's bound to leave an imprint. But there are a few pubs in Calgary whose colorful histories make them particularly unsurprising targets for the supernatural. Built in Calgary's original Fire Hall No. 3, the Hose and Hound pub was constructed in 1906 for what was then an enormous amount of money, $3,000. For nearly 50 years it operated as one of the city's main fire halls, but as times changed, so too did the equipment used to fight fires and eventually the building was simply too small to hold the new fire trucks used to battle blazes, and a new fire hall number three was built a few blocks away. During the thirty years that followed, the building was used first as a community center and then a furniture store, but eventually the store went out of business and the old fire hall was left to rot, frequented only by the homeless and addicts looking for a quiet spot to get high. Then in 1982, the building was bought, fixed up, and converted into a fine dining restaurant. The only problem, the neighborhood. Inglewood wasn't always the trendy, gentrified place it is today. And fine dining in what was then a notoriously sketchy neighborhood uh, didn't really take off. After ten years of struggling, the space was converted into what's now known as the Hose and Hound. But while the building and the neighborhood have managed to leave the darker parts of their history behind in the rubble of renovation, the past always seems to writhe its way to the surface. Cappy Smart, Calgary's first fire chief, originally ran the fire hall when it was in operation, and he was known for more than his skills in a blaze. He had a soft spot for collecting animals. Animals that seemed to take a liking to the place enough to stick around. Cappy's horse, Lightning, who, ironically, was killed in a fire in the building, can still be heard clopping through the front entrance on quiet mornings. But it was Cappy's pet monkey, Barney, who seems the most attached to the place. When you're stuck waiting around for the fire bell to ring, Keeping yourself entertained is essential to maintaining sanity, and having a pet monkey certainly fit that bill. Barney was a constant source of amusement for the men, especially a gruff group of guys who liked to tease and pester the little creature. But one afternoon, when the alarm bell sounded and the crew was called off to fight a fire, they left Barney tied to the flagpole in front of the fire hall. And for a young boy out walking with his parents, no doubt a cute little monkey tied in front of the fire hall was an instant source of excitement. The boy ran up to Barney and tried to offer the monkey a treat. But after so much teasing at the hands of the firemen, Barney had understandably developed some trust issues. He lashed out at the boy, 
scratching and biting, and as a result, they were forced to put the poor little guy down. The crew buried him in the front yard of the fire hall, but over the years, Barney hasn't exactly stayed to his new accommodations. One of his favorite pastimes is getting up to mischief in the pub. There are countless stories of pails of baking soda flying through the air, or the dishwasher turning itself on and spraying kitchen workers. The oven doors are known to open and slam shut with no one nearby. One cook even complained of having his shoelaces untied more than a dozen times during his early morning shift, no matter how tightly he knotted them. Add to that the sight of a monkey-shaped shadow moving across shelves and over cupboards, and it seems like a dead giveaway to the culprit's identity. Another one of my favorite old haunts from back in the day was the Cat and Fiddle pub. When you walk in the front door, you'd probably never know it. It looks like any average pub for the most part. Brick walls, wooden furniture, TVs, sports memorabilia, and other knickknacks on the walls. But beneath that veneer, there's, well, death. Lots of it. The cat and fiddle, you see, spent its first 40 years as a funeral home and crematorium. As you enter the building, past the stained glass window of what used to be the chapel, and head down a steep, narrow, low-ceilinged stairwell, you can't help but feel a heavy weight ball up in your chest. At the bottom of the stairs is an office and a liquor storage room. A room that also used to be the embalming room. Pipes and drains still line the walls and floor, once used for scrubbing the bodies of the deceased. And at the far end is an elevator shaft, used to transport ashes up to the main floor. With that kind of space making up the foundation of the building, it's really no wonder it has such a history of haunts. Not malicious, mind you, but certainly protective, and enough to leave a lasting impression on those who worked there. One morning, the kitchen manager had just arrived for work. Getting ready to start his day, he went down to the basement to grab some supplies, and was startled to find one of the owners was already in the downstairs office. Strangely, she was wearing a bright red dress, and her back was to him. There was a scent, too. Flowers. Lavender? Morning, Jean, he said. How are you doing? But she didn't answer. He shrugged, grabbed what he'd come down for, and headed upstairs. No sooner had he rounded the corner into the kitchen than Jean came out from the front of the house. Were you just, he stammered, were you just downstairs? She'd been upstairs all morning, she promised him. That incident was far from the only encounter with the red woman, though. In fact, the spirit prompted the owners to bring in a medium, who identified her as the former funeral director, waiting to begin her next embalming. The scent of heavy embalming oils and solvents masked with the pungent odor of lavender. Yet another otherworldly resident of the Cat and Fiddle is affectionately known as John the Biker. One night, a man broke into the bar and began ransacking the place. But as he threw things around looking for valuables, he glanced in the mirror behind the bar and froze. Two bright lights had turned on in the gloom behind him, accompanied by the sound of a low growl. Terrified, the man dropped whatever he had grabbed. As he bolted for the door, the lights came rushing toward him, hot on his heels, and disappearing as he narrowly made his escape. When the manager reviewed the security footage the next morning and watched the strange scene unfold, a smile creased the corners of his mouth. Those lights, almost like a motorcycle. It was John. Had to be. John was no stranger to staff. 
a spirit known to ride his motorcycle through the main bar every once in a while. But it turns out he was pretty protective of his favorite watering hole, too. Sure beats the hell out of your average security system. There are countless other stories of strange activity in the bar as well. TVs sometimes won't turn on, no matter what buttons are pressed or switches flipped. Until, that is, one particular spirit feels like watching something. And even then, it can be picky about the channel. We'd have Super Bowl Sundays and everyone would be watching, one employee remembers. It's third down, everyone's excited, they needed the point to win the game, and all of a sudden, the TVs would change to Spongebob. I guess, at least, the spirit with the remote had a sense of humor. There are also stories of a man in a top hat and tails who regularly disturbs visitors to the men's washroom, first standing ominously close to them at the urinal, then proceeding to walk through the wall and out of the building. That's only a small sampling of the tales both staff and patrons of the Cat and Fiddle have collected over the years. Can't say I've ever had the pleasure of experiencing one firsthand, but I do always remember there being something a little unsettling about the place. Of course, that's nothing a pint or two can't fix. So if you're ever in Calgary and looking for some spirits with your spirits, you've got plenty of places to choose from. Just don't forget to tip. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We have one story for you this evening, which comes to us from Kev Harrison. Kev Harrison is a British writer of dark and strange fiction living in Lisbon, Portugal. His work has been published in a variety of anthologies, including the acclaimed Lost Films from Perpetual Motion Machine Publishing, In Darkness, Delight, Creatures of the Night from Corpus Press, as well as the Other Stories podcast from Hawk and Cleaver, and right here at Tales to Terrify. His debut novelette, Cinders of a Blind Man Who Could See, is available now from Domain Publishing, and his novella, The Balance, is coming early in 2020 from Lycan Valley Press. You can find more of his work at kevharrisonfiction.com. Children of the Night, join me for Kev Harrison's A Precious Quarry, first published in Beyond the Infinite, Tales from the Outer Reaches, from Things in the Well, August 2018.
A billion minuscule fragments of rock and ice drifted away from the hulking rock face as the dual claws bit in, securing the Pegasus. Reflections from the small ship's searchlights bathed the cockpit in bright white. Carol, tint windows 30%, said Thomas as he eased off the throttle on the reverse thrusters. The blinding light dimmed to something approaching daylight. Confirm ship stability. He paused until a female voice spoke from the ether. Claws locked, Captain Thomas. Hull stability at 91%. Thomas unclipped his four-point belt and tapped the button on his headset. All crew to dining quarters in five minutes. The Pegasus has landed. Experimental drilling scheduled for 0800 UTC. He drifted up from the seat and stretched. His limbs felt stiff from the force of the maneuvering operation. After slingshotting off the orbit of the dwarf planet Ceres, the Pegasus had been pulling 11 or 12 Gs until applying reverse thrust to prevent the ship from being atomized on contact with 16 Psyche, the largest known metallic cord asteroid. The Pegasus's mission was a proof of concept for Mineralium ad Astra. Get this right, and their shareholding would go through the roof. That's why Thomas was the pilot. Over a thousand missions in RAF aircraft, dozens of those black ops, below radar. He was someone they could rely on to get the Pegasus onto the asteroid, even if the paycheck was colossal. But now they were here. He'd earned it. He swam through the thin, recycled air, curious at the tiny pull he felt from the Psyche's gravity behind him. He waited for the hiss of the decompression seal to open from the cockpit and floated out into the communal space. Reese was already hovering there. The Brazilian drilling expert hovered by the entrance from the sleep chamber, one hand untangling her mane of almost black hair while the other squeezed every morsel from her meal pack. Where's Lucas? said Thomas, edging along a wall rail to take a meal pack of his own. He pulled out a foil pouch labeled Forest Fruit Porridge and uncapped it, sucking out the pasty contents. Mmm, was all Reese managed to say her mouth full of blended beef and bean stew, basically baby food. But she gestured behind her with her thumb. Thomas nodded, then sucked up the rest of his dinner. The doors to the sleeping quarters hissed, and Lucas glided out, as graceful as a swan. My hundred and fourth dump in space, and it never feels any less weird, he said as he slowed himself down with the railing. Thomas stuffed his empty meal pack into the recyclable chute and snapped the hatch shut behind it. Thank you for that image while I eat, Lieutenant. Lucas grinned. Sorry, guys. Didn't mean to put you off your edible wallpaper paste. <laughs> he winked at Reese, who giggled and shook her head. Anyway, what's the plan from here? Thomas pushed himself forward and drifted over to a smart tabletop in the center of the room. He tapped the dark glass surface and it came to life. An image of the asteroid surface came into view. The hydraulics of the Pegasus's claws at either side of the shot. Carol, can we increase definition on screen? They waited as fine details painted themselves into the canvas of the rock face in front of them. Okay, here we go, said Thomas. He pointed to a raised area in rock face. This here is where the experts in California have said we're best to start drilling. Reese, you'll start with a wide-pointed, physical drill, and then once we're through the rocky outer layer, you'll switch to laser. Remember, we're four and a half solar units from the sun right now. This thing will be cold. Slow and steady. We've got a seven-hour window, daily to drill, then we power down till the next day. Reese nodded. Aye, aye, Capitan. This can't be any worse than the subsea stuff I did off the coast of Chile a few years back. Remind me, Captain Thomas, what am I doing while she's in here operating the machinery? Lucas slurped at a meal pack as he finished his question. I was just coming to you, Lucas, said Thomas with a smile that might have been forced. As the only one of the team with real space experience, I want you suited outside. You'll be monitoring the drill hole from close in reporting on debris and the structural integrity of the claw grip. Carol's sensors can't accurately read risk of detachment during the drilling process if we start to experience violent vibration. Lucas washed down his meal pack with two blasts of water from the hose, which he then swirled round his mouth before swallowing. 
Okay, Captain. Consider it done. I'll go and suit up. He unzipped his overalls to the waist and began tugging his arms from the sleeves as he exited the communal zone into the pre-airlock. Thomas looked at his watch. Twelve minutes until first shift. Let's get to work. Reese nodded and followed him through to the drill module. She slipped the augmented reality goggles over her head and lowered herself into the body contoured seat. She grabbed the two joysticks in front of her and pushed her right hand forward, a colossal shimmering drill piece mimicking her movements beyond the window panel. She leaned forward and left on the right hand, and a camera arm with a headlamp followed her lead out front. She squeezed gently with her thumb on her left, and the lamp came to life, shining a bright spotlight onto the drill bit, simultaneously lighting up myriad specks of floating dust and ice that drifted in front of the ship. If you need Carol to lower the brightness, just say the word. You can't work if you're dazzled, said Thomas. Reese instinctively turned her head towards Thomas, despite her goggles showing her only what the frontal camera could see. I like it. It's like snow. Haven't seen it in years. She beamed as she spoke, then turned back to face front. The ship juddered to one side, and then settled. Must be Lucas leaving the airlock, said Thomas. They waited, the silence of space stretching time out to an eternity. Captain, Lucas's voice said over the main broadcast speakers. Lucas, give us an update, said Thomas. I've just reached the port side claw, about to clip in my tether. The ship rocked again, more gently this time. Clipped in, we're good to go, Captain. Thomas glanced at his watch again. T minus 30 seconds, Reese and then you're clear to commence drilling. She nodded without reply, easing the camera arm closer to the target. A hum rang out through the ship. Day one drilling, window open, said Carol. Reese twisted her right hand forward, as though on a motorcycle, and watched as the drill piece began to spin before her eyes. At the upper right-hand corner of her AR display, the revolutions of the drill increased through 3,000, 4. When it reached 5,500, she pressed forward and to the left, Carol imposing a crosshair of sorts over the target area. She felt the pushback as the point made contact and began to dig into the rock face. Woohoo! Lucas over the speaker system. It's like a snow globe out here. Beautiful! Keep an eye on your air filtration and suit pressure, Lucas. That beautiful stuff might still be capable of tearing through your suit, said Thomas, his tone serious. Man, I am never inviting you for Christmas dinner, <laughs> said Lucas, his voice trailing off into laughter. Reese too wore a smile as she pressed forward with a little more force. The tip of the drill bit disappeared from sight. The Pegasus swayed as the airlock clunked shut. Moments later, Lucas drifted in, still climbing into his overalls. Welcome back, Mr. Lucas, Thomas nodded. So this is where we find ourselves. Reese, want to take over from here? Reese took a long slug of water from the drinking hose before replacing it and hovering over to the table screen. She planted her palm on the surface and began to draw rings on the live image of the rock face. Now that the drill window is closed and Psyche is facing away from the sun, it's not terribly clear, but these are the four incisions I made today. The first one here was the ideal entry. But then we found a space behind it. A cavern or hollow of some kind. So we moved to our second preference, which was here. Same thing. Entries three and four proved identical, meaning there's a hollow behind the rock face. Thank you, said Thomas, floating closer. What problems does that pose for the mission? Reese shrugged her shoulders. In theory, none at all. It's just... Unusual, because the data implied that Psyche was solid all the way through. Rock on the surface, but then nickel and iron ore, the stuff we're here for, in the middle. It's also geologically unlikely for such a layer, for want of a better word, to exist above a hollow. Could it be a result of low gravity? Lucas chimed in. Difficult to compare terrestrial rock formation processes to this rock. That's not more than a couple hundred miles across, right? Reese nodded. Perhaps. Pfft. 
What else, little green men? Lucas made antenna with his fingers and pulled a ridiculous expression. Thomas laughed, surprising everyone. Then swiped his hand over the screen from right to left to bring up the scheduling program. Let's not lose sleep over it. We still have four days drilling and only need a couple of kilos of ore as proof of concept. Then we head home. We'll see what Base has to say about this gap behind the rock face. He glanced at his watch. Our transmission should reach them in about a quarter of an hour. By morning they'll have run simulations and sent back advice on how we proceed. Yes, sir, said Reese. Lucas saluted with two raised fingers. Now who wants to watch a movie? I'm going back to look at debris trajectories here in the asteroid belt. Make sure no collisions have altered courses and put us at risk. Then I'll hit the sack. I'll say goodnight to you both now, Thomas said as he swam towards the cockpit door. No films for me either, Lucas. I'm going to send a couple of emails and get some sleep. Ciao. Reese drifted towards the sleep quarters as she spoke. Explosive charges? Lucas's face was flesh red, almost purple. In space? Are you fucking kidding me? Reese drifted over to him, placing a hand on his shoulder. Lucas, this was always a distinct possibility, and the explosives are the size of your thumb. Calm down. He jerked his arm away, jutting backward in the control room and having to flap his arms to right himself. I will not calm down. Every ounce of the force from the explosion will be on the ship. What if the claws can't sustain it? We'll disconnect the claws and use compressed air to push the ship back without thrusters. It's going to be okay, Lucas. And if not, it's on me. They're not paying us silly money because it's easy. Lucas swore under his breath. Shit. Do I need to ask who'll be doing the walk to place the explosives? I'll be with you all the way on the mic, spaceman, said Reese with a sarcastic tone. Lucas grimaced at her and continued to whisper his annoyance under his breath. Okay, Thomas said, drifting along the wall to the airlock door. Let's get you prepped with the charges. Lucas glanced at Reese once more and followed the captain out the door. Reese watched intently, the camera arm lurching forward beside Lucas and broadcasting into her AR headset. Carol overlaid a 3D-modeled frame over the charge device, helping her to understand exactly when it was deep enough to maximize the shock to the rock face and minimize the particles released by the blast. Stop there, Lucas. It's perfect. The white-suited figure turned its head, the golden, opaque visor reflecting a tiny sun among an ocean of stars. He gave the thumbs up, checked his tether for slack, then hopped down to the rock face to place the next charge. The camera closed on him again as he inserted explosive into the drill hole, waiting for Reese's signal. Two charges delivered, two to go. Acknowledged, the voice of Thomas from the cockpit watching the events from above. Lucas angled down his left arm and unclipped his compressed air tube. He let out a tiny burst and shot upward towards the next charge site. Unprepared, Reese tugged back on the camera arm a fraction too late, Lucas's shoulder crashing into the arm. Fuck! Lucas, are you hurt? She stopped mid-sentence, her left hand leaving the camera stick and joining her right and covering her gaping mouth. The explosive charge danced through the air spinning through seven or eight revolutions for every inch it moved toward the hulking gray-green claw of the Pegasus. Lucas threw his left arm to his side, thumping the camera arm and popping the cap on his compressed air tube, sending him into a sickening, slow, almost balletic pursuit of the tiny explosive. Disengaging claw in five seconds, said Thomas over the main broadcast channel. Wait, Captain, I can make it. Lucas hissed the words. He strained his right arm towards the spinning object. Three, two, Captain! Reese's voice tremored. Lucas grasped the charge in his gloved hand, slowing himself to a stop with another jet of air. There was a moment of silence, but for Lucas's gasped breaths. Well done, Lucas. Great job. Thomas's voice was calm. I think I pissed myself a little bit. Jesus! Reese cackled. Do more to go, spaceman. You can deal with that after. Come on. She carefully pulled back the camera arm, which seemed unaffected by contact with Lucas. She used the zoom lens, affording Lucas more space to work. Fifteen minutes later, all charges were in place. The ship rocked as the airlock sealed shut, and Thomas released the vice-like grip of the claws. 
Reese stayed in her drill operating chair and watched as tiny fragments of rock tumbled away from the claws in all directions, before being blown forward, up and over the face of the asteroid by the ship's angled compressed air jets. The ship jolted backwards, its steadying thrusters disengaged. Rear thrusters ignited, stabilizing the Pegasus's movement. Eleven meters until Pegasus is clear of blast radius, Carol's soothing voice over the internal speakers. Eight until Pegasus backs into one of Psyche's babies, Carol, said Thomas through gritted teeth. He pushed forward on the throttle, rear thrusters engaging once again and bringing the Pegasus to a complete stop. Carol, detonate charges, said Thomas as he drifted into the drill control area. Lucas followed in a clean overall. Thomas gripped his shoulder. Great job out there, Lucas. Lucas grinned. Pegasus is currently located four meters within potential blast radius. Detonation program locked. Overridden. Detonate immediately. Reese looked over her shoulder from the drilling chair at the two men hovering at her shoulder, her eyes wide. Confirm override, Captain Thomas, said Carol, ever monotone. Confirmed. None of the crew had witnessed an explosion in space before. The blinding white light and debris flying in all directions somehow didn't sit right with the total absence of sound. Their meditations on this were interrupted after a second, when the shock wave from the blast hit Pegasus and rocked the ship, pushing it further back. Carol, automatic rear thrusters, hold this position, said Thomas firmly against the sound of the metal hull straining. A hailstorm of tiny rocks clattered against the front window, a cacophony of tiny drum beats with no rhythm. The rocks reflected away in all directions, each one's spin observably different as they dispersed into the blanket of space. Hull integrity, Carol. Zero breaches detected, Captain Thomas. Hull integrity at 100%. All three crew members cheered. Okay, I'm going to maneuver us back to drilling position for tomorrow, said Thomas, pushing himself off the wall and towards the cockpit hatch. Um, Captain, before you do... You should take a look at this. Reese sat forward in her chair as she spoke, her eyes unblinking. She reached up for the AR goggles and tugged them on over her eyes. Intuitively, she pushed forward with her left hand, bringing the camera in closer, tiny pieces of rubble still colliding with it as it extended. She could see now in fine detail what Lucas and Thomas were straining to look at, noses almost to the window. A black vapor, somehow darker than the colorless void of space that surrounded everything, seeped from the cavernous space in Psyche's bulk. It began to disperse, tendrils squirming like smoke until there was no trace of it left. Beyond, though, was something far more sinister. A smooth surface beneath the blast hole. Solid black rock. On it were carved four lines of symbols. Pictograms. Somehow they were familiar to the whole crew, but they couldn't decipher from where. What the fuck is that? This is impossible. Lucas's quivering voice betrayed his uncertainty. Reese squeezed the button on the left stick with her thumb, illuminating the flawless black surface with the camera's light attachment. Carol's onboard recognition software overlaid the symbols with a red crisscross grid. Characters from hundreds of alphabets flickered in front of her eyes until the image stopped still. Reese tried to speak, but her tongue was useless. Had a mind of its own. Cap- Captain Thomas? Carol says- She says- They're hieroglyphs. The crew hovered around the table screen in the communal area while the image of the inscriptions was overlaid thousands of times a second with glowing red stencils. The flickering stopped. Translation, 88% complete. Nine symbols unrecognized, said Carol. Display on screen, Carol, Thomas said, drifting to a more central position. The photo wiped from the screen, replaced with a gray background. Red letters began to appear, separated into four panels representing the four chunks of hieroglyphs carved into the rock. Here interred lies Seth, god of chaos and evil, god of the desert and disorder. Seth, here imprisoned by Ra, the god of the sun, and the all-seeing eye, Newt, goddess of the sky. The sanction here placed upon Seth by Ra and Newt is without end. He who attempts to break this prison shall, untranslatable, 
The Crimes of Seth, Genocide, Destruction of the Untranslatable, are without precedent. So shall be his punishment. What in the name of fuck is that? Lucas stared, mouth agape, first at Thomas, then at Reese. Reese shook her head but struggled to form words. Carol, why are those two parts <coughs> untranslatable? Thomas's voice caught in his throat, his breathing ragged. Even he was spooked. Nine symbols from the rock face are unavailable in my primary source database. Currently querying both British Museum in London and Supreme Council of Antiquities in Cairo for guidance. Transmission time estimated at 57 minutes. Estimated time of response is 2 hours and 11 minutes. Shitting hell. Thomas balled his hands into his fists. Two fucking hours? Reese, we need to record a video message to the ground team at Ad Astra HQ. This, surprisingly, was not in the mission manual. I have no idea what we should do to proceed. Reese nodded. Sure thing, Captain. I'm going to go and splash some water on my face. Eat something. Thomas offered her a half-hearted smile and turned to Lucas. Lucas, I need you to map collision data for the area. I'm not going to have time with the message to base. And there's debris everywhere out here. Lucas's expression was grave. I'll get to it, Captain Thomas. He drifted over to the cockpit hatch and went in. Thomas held his hands up. They trembled. He covered his face for a moment and inhaled a long breath. The hissing of the sleep quarters door jolted him to attention. Reese swam over. Are you all right, Thomas? He stroked the stubble on his chin with one hand while he considered how to answer. I'm just a bit shaken up, I suppose. I've done some crazy dangerous things in my life, but even on Black Ops with the RAF, I've always felt like I was in control. You know? He looked down at his hands, the fingers absentmindedly knitted together. When we arrived at Psyche, maneuvering around all that debris, no problem. But this? I mean, the fuck is it? Reese gripped Thomas's shoulder and squeezed. You'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. And we'll overcome it, whatever we have to do. Thomas rubbed his eyes. You're right. It's all we can do. Now let's make this video. They each veered toward the tabletop screen. Thomas touched his way through a variety of menus, and they began to explain to the camera what had happened. Lucas drifted into the sleeping quarters where Thomas and Reese were reading, secured into their bunks. I've finished the debris analysis, Captain. There's a three-meter chunk from a collision about 700 kilometers out that we should keep an eye on, but nothing urgent. Thomas lifted his head. Great news, Lucas. Thanks for doing that. Lucas nodded his head and floated towards his own bunk. Missing translation components located, said Carol. Preparing to display estimated translation on main screen. Reese slotted her e-reader above her bunk, then turned to the others. Let's go. They all swam through the hatch into the main communal area and hovered around the screen. The previous message was loaded, gaps in the text still present. Slowly, the missing pieces were inserted. The third line read, The sanction here placed upon Seth by Ra and Newt is without end. He who attempts to break this prison shall bear the weight of the astral plague. The fourth line, too, was now complete. The crimes of Seth, genocide, destruction of the ones from the invisible void beyond the mighty sun are without precedent. So shall be his punishment. Reese was the first to speak. Geralt, why is the translation an estimate? The additional symbols have been located in only one terrestrial location, the banishment stella at the Temple of Seth in Mut el-Karab. Due to the singular providence, translation cannot be corroborated. Reese turned to Thomas and Lucas. Hell of a coincidence. She scratched her nose. What do we do now, Captain? Thomas's eyes remained locked on the screen. We wait for the instructions from Ad Astra HQ. We're in uncharted territory. 
They ate in silence, the sound of the plastic foil pouches being crushed in their hands deafening by comparison. Lucas drank down a jet of water, then passed the hose across to Reese, who took a few sips and handed it on to Thomas. I'm gonna go and lie down for a while, listen to some music, Lucas said, his fingers fidgeting. He launched himself towards the sleeping quarters. The hatch hissed as the pressure dispersed and the door began to ease open. Incoming message from Ad Astra headquarters, said Carol. Lucas flung out his hands, halting his exit. He spun himself around and kicked off the wall towards the others. Play message, Thomas said, as Lucas arrived at his side. The screen blinked to black, and then to a view of a high-rise office suite. Two men in smart suits sat at desks angled towards the camera. They introduced themselves as Anthony Nichols, the non-executive chairman, and Bill Jackson, the man who hired them all, at Astra's CEO. Mr. Nichols gestured towards Mr. Jackson, and he began to speak. Thank you all for your message. I have to say, we down here on Earth found it all terribly cute. I ran the images by the modeling and charting teams, and their suggestion is that the hieroglyphs, as you're calling them, are just as likely to be scratches from the blast you created, or from internal pressures within the cavern system. The graying man smiled and reached forward to take a drink of water. I don't really believe this is necessary, but Anthony insists that I remind you that the cost of this proof-of-concept mission currently sits at something like $88 billion. Neither we nor the shareholders place as much stock in ancient boogeymen as we do in the near-limitless potential of the cutting-edge technology you have on board the Pegasus, nor the revolutionary possibilities it might mean for the mineral market. We look forward to your update tomorrow night once you breach the rock face. Thank you once again for your message. The screen went blank. Message complete. Replay. Silence hung heavy in the room. Replay message, Captain Thomas. Thomas breathed out a heavy sigh. Captain Thomas. There'll be no need to replay the message. Thank you, Carol. Thomas rubbed his temples with his fingertips. He kicked off the floor, angling towards the sleeping quarters. Thomas, Reese called after him. Thomas spun in the air to face his crew. What are we going to do now? Her voice was cracked with desperation. Thomas reached up, touching the ceiling to slow himself down. We drill at dawn tomorrow. Didn't you hear the message? Reese shifted her weight, launching herself towards him. Scratches from the blast? Pressure from the cavern? That's bullshit. You saw the inscriptions yourself. They did not come to be there by chance. Thomas looked into her eyes, silent. She turned her head. Come on, Lucas. You saw it. Help me out here. Lucas shook his head where he floated. Captain gives orders, Reese. I follow. We're the crew. That's what we're here for. Reese looked from Lucas to Thomas and back again. Are you serious? Are you actually fucking serious? Lucas moved toward the screen, swiping and bringing up the live view from the camera. He stared for a moment. The first thing I said when the debris cleared after the explosion, it's impossible. He looked up at Reese. Maybe Jackson's right. Either way, we have an appointment with the drill in the morning. I'm going to get some sleep. He swam across the room towards the sleeping quarters. He pressed the button to open the hatch, then turned back to Reese. As our drilling expert, so should you. Lucas, can you hear me? Reese sat in the drill chair, headset pulled down over her eyes. I can. I'm in position and I'll stay out of the way of your camera arm this time. He chuckled over the communication system. You just stay focused and watch for debris coming out your way, okay? Said Thomas from the cockpit. Okay, commencing drilling. Said Reese as she smoothly led forward with the drill and camera in unison. Her eyes fixed on Carol's calculated safest point of entry between the first and second row of hieroglyphic symbols. She felt fierce resistance as the drill made contact with the smooth stone, sparks flying in all directions. 
I'm going to up the power. You might want to prepare to change position, Lucas. Understood, he said and shifted a few feet back, still gripping his tether. Reese squeezed the button under her right thumb forcefully, shoving her hand forward. A smile crept onto her face as she felt the drill find purchase and begin to cut through the rock. Sparks continued to spray out in a random pattern, negating any need for the camera's lamp. The drill dove deeper until she felt the speed of its revolutions quickening, the friction reducing. She released her right thumb, the tool slowing to a stop. Tomas feels like another cavity, she said. Go to the next best entry point, Reese. She pulled back on the drill, revealing a tip that shone from the effort of breaching the black stone. She forced it back in, a perfect bullseye on Carol's second target. Several minutes later, she eased off the throttle once more. Same thing? Thomas from the cockpit. Exactly, said Reese, feeling sweat beating on her forehead and wiping it with the back of her wrist. I'm going to angle the drill, come through the space between these two incisions. Give us a chance to get a look inside. You're the expert, Thomas said, chewing on his lip in the cockpit. The drill bit easily into the rough surface of the damaged stone, the surrounding rock material breaking down, crumbling into boulders the size of footballs which broke off and drifted into space. Reese turned to the camera fractionally to check on Lucas, pleased to find him at a safe distance and using a debris shield to deflect pieces that came too close. The camera darted back to its target just in time to find the last slender bridge between the two incisions crumble and fall away into the surrounding darkness. Reese inhaled deeply. Ready to take a look, Captain? Before Thomas could reply, a slender T-shaped object, gray in color, floated from among the debris towards the drill. Reese instinctively pulled back with both arms. Lucas, what the hell is that? Fuck! said Lucas. He sprang himself off the hull toward the object as it drifted forward. Reese worked the camera arm, edging closer until she saw a head tilt up from a slumped position. The skin was pink, turning whiter with every passing moment. The eyelids peeled open, revealing stones, a shimmering blue in color, where eyes might once have been. Frost began to form at the side of the thing's face, beginning to tear as the lips parted, revealing a cavernous black maw, devoid of teeth or tongue. Reese pulled back her hand, covering her mouth. The camera went limp, its focus still trained on the man, if that's really what it was, before her. Lucas! Thomas cried out at the top of his lungs. His voice still filled Lucas's earpiece as his body slammed into the gray man. He gripped him in a bear hug, feeling his tether pull taut and tug him back towards the Pegasus. Reese, Thomas, the winch! Seems like this thing might be alive! Reese reacted first pulling her AR visor from her head and catapulting herself from the drill seat and into the main communal area. She stretched forward with her right arm, slapping the button for the pre-airlock. The hatch hissed and began to slide open. Come on, come on, said Reese, slamming the wall panel. Finally, the space was wide enough for her to squeeze her body through. She paddled through the air to the spacewalk tether winch and jerked back the lever. Immediately began spinning and whirring. She raced back out of the pre-airlock and sealed the door behind her, waiting for Lucas to come back in. Thomas put a hand on her shoulder, startling her. We'll be ready, he said, clutching a series of medical supplies. The ship jolted as the external airlock opened, then closed again, Lucas releasing the body and floating back a few paces to get a better look at it under the lights. Thomas and Reese were inside within a few seconds, Thomas gesturing for Reese to strap the body down. She took hold of the tether as Lucas freed himself from his spacesuit and bounded around the person. Now that it was inside, it became clear that the gray tone was not the thing's skin at all, but rather strips of fabric bound around the whole body. Only the skin on the face and head was visible, and it was glowing red, chapped beyond recognition by the frozen nothingness of space. The blue stones, clearly recognizable as lapis up close, filled the straining eye sockets. Still, the lips moved. Carol, can you hear what he's... it saying? Can you recognize it? Thomas spoke as he removed a wooden spatula from its sterile sheath and pressed down its bottom lip. 
Inside were gums black and empty. The tongue had been cut away at the very back of the throat. Thomas cringed as he looked inside. He allowed the lips to close and they began to quiver again, forming shapes and patterns none of them could recognize. No sound is being emitted from the mouth, Captain Thomas. Sensors indicate no vibration within the throat and no air passing between the lips, despite the movement. Basic scans suggest thorax and lungs have been removed, along with the other vital organs, Carol said. Recommend investigative surgical verification. The shoulders of the thing flinched then. Reese adjusted her position, hovering above to press the torso back to the ground and tightening the tether straps. She looked up at Thomas, opened her mouth in search of words that weren't there. Lucas, get me some better light over here, said Thomas as he took a cutting tool from the supplies hovering at his side and began to slice through the frozen strips of fabric binding the thing. Every cut sent a judder up his arm. Lucas brought over a portable lamp and shone it down onto the body. With the leathery skin now exposed, Thomas held the point of his blade to the chest below the neck and sliced down. The skin peeled away, rolling back like ancient parchment and revealing a cage of blackened bones. An empty cage. Oh, my God! Reese brought her hand up to cover her mouth, swallowing any other words in the process. How is it... How is it moving, Captain? Thomas shook his head, unable to remove his eyes from the thing as it strained against its bonds, despite being a mere shell. Do you smell something? Lucas, six feet above the body with the lamp, covered his nose with his free hand. Thomas dropped the cutter and shifted back, nudging against the wall. Reese, too, edged farther away. A black vapor rose from the area of Thomas's incision, thickening into a heavy-looking cloud, as though it might unleash a storm of pure, poisonous evil. Reese reached the hatch to the main communal quarters and thumped the button to open it. Captain, I think we should get this thing off the Pegasus. It could be dangerous. Thomas nodded, clutching a railing on the wall behind him. Carol, prepare images of the... thing from every angle you can manage. Lucas, suit up. We need to open the airlock and I need you to make sure it's headed for deep space. Can you do that for me? Yes, sir. Lucas managed as he tugged his spacesuit on over his legs against the whirring sound of Carol's drone cameras surrounding the body and snapping periodic shots of it. Thomas swam toward Reese, the two of them exiting the pre-airlock and hurrying to the screen. The hatch closed behind them with a clunk. Tell me the instant your suit is pressurized and tethered, Lucas, and I'll have Carol open the airlock. And stay clear of that cloud. They watched as Lucas's helmet clicked into place, the two pressure-safe lights blinking into life. He reached down to the lower torso of the body, unclipping the tether from the floor. The creature sprung free, the stones in its eye sockets now seemingly dim from the bright blue to a deep indigo. Its arms flung out from its side, reassuming the T position it had left the asteroid's chamber in. Lucas tried to shift backward, but the cloud moved ahead of the body. It broke down, becoming less substantial, wisps of black coiling around Lucas's arms in midriff. He grunted over the communication systems, then began to wail. Blow the airlock! shouted Reese, tapping at the commands on the screen below her and the captain. Confirm airlock opening request, Captain Thomas. Carol's voice is calm and monotonous as ever. Blow it! Fucking blow it now! Thomas bellowed the words the pegasus rocking as the airlock blew open. Lucas's hands flailed as tendrils of coiled black vapor clung to him. The vacuum of space gripped them all. The body, Lucas, and the now-stretched cloud. Oh no, 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 no! Thomas said as the tether slipped from Lucas's hands and he was pulled out from the ship, into the void. Captain Thomas! Thomas! Reese! The tether! The tether! Carol flicked to an external camera in time for them to see Lucas free his left arm from the vapor with a violent swing. He fired a jet of compressed air, hurling himself back toward the ship. The body clattered into him with all its dead weight. The sound of the crack in Lucas's visor on the communicator forced bile up Thomas's esophagus. The tangled shape of the two bodies pirouetted as they drifted hopelessly towards one of Psyche's smaller, orbiting asteroids. Monitor off. Airlock closed, Carol, Thomas said. The screen blackened. 
The Pegasus jerked back and forth. Then there was silence. Thomas drifted out towards the sleeping quarters, leaving Reese to the quiet cascade of her tears. Thomas, wait. Reese called out. Not now, Reese. I... I just can't. The sleeping quarters sealed shut. Okay, Reese. We're all set for hibernation. I've programmed Carol to wake us up 18 hours before we start re-entry. That's 121 days from now. Thomas said, buckling himself into his bunk and searching for a vein with his IV. Reese fastened her own buckles. My first and last time in space. I don't suppose they'll want to send us back up, coming back empty-handed. Thomas leaned forward. With what happened to Lucas, I think we have to feel lucky to be going back at all, empty-handed or not. Reese sniffed, then shook her head. You're right, of course. Still, I wonder where Ad Astra will go from here. Can't imagine the shareholders are going to be happy. Let's worry about that in 17 weeks, said Thomas, jabbing his IV into his arm. He laid back and felt his eyes grow heavy as drugs flowed into his blood, slowing his heart rate. Reese found her own vein and laid back, eyes closed. The Pegasus drifted for two days in silence, lights and power down save for engines and life support. Auto-playing audio message said Carol's voice from the darkness. Hello, crew of the Pegasus. My name is Professor Mohammed El-Mazri from the Supreme Council of Antiquities in Egypt. I took great interest in your ship's computer querying some of my cataloging at Mut El-Karab. There was the sound of the professor drinking something. Anyway, I wanted to tell you a little about the myth of the votive temple here, as it's quite curious. It was ransacked by the servants of Mut and Ra, the service of Seth, as the god of evil and chaos, was strictly forbidden. The text from within the temple crypt, which I hope to publish in the next two to three years, said that the high priest was bound to the energy of Seth, and launched into space as an empty vessel to play permanent host to the horror of Seth's great power of destruction. There are some incredible reliefs here, depicting Seth being vaporized by Ra's light and fed into the vacant body of the high priest. Unlike anything we found before, I invite the whole crew to come and take a look when you're back on terra firma. Anyway, you're probably out cold by now, as I know you're on your way back. I'll be waiting for your call. The message cut out, and silence once again took over the Pegasus. On the outside of the main airlock, a cloud so opaque, its blackness contrasted against the void of space twisted itself ever tighter around the contours of the Pegasus, waiting. That was Kev Harrison's A Precious Quarry, as read by Spencer Desparty. Spencer is a musician and narrator from Phoenix, Arizona. He has done work for such podcasts as Pseudopod, Tales to Terrify, and Starship Sofa. You can find his music at soundcloud.com slash thegearianband. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Spencer. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters through Patreon and PayPal. If you're not already a supporter, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify for a look at all the awesome perks from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and swag. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. If you're looking for another way to help, why not drop a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts? 
Ratings and reviews are an easy way to show your appreciation and help us spread the darkness. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we plumb the depths of horror with more Tales to Terrify. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.